Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, what role should hospitality play in the Christian life? Our guest, Joshua Jipp, understands that kindness to strangers and the marginalized is an essential part of the church's identity. We'll discuss it in full during the show. Stay tuned. Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Joshua Jipp. Dr. Jipp is Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's taught New Testament in a variety of settings, and much of his scholarly work is focused on the book of Acts and the life of Paul. We're discussing his new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, published recently by Erdman's Press. Joshua Jipp, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks so much, David. Looking forward to our conversation. So let's just dive right in. When we say the word hospitality, we think of hotels, or maybe if we're connecting the word, we think of hospitals. But you're using this term in a very specific way. What do you mean when you say the word hospitality? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I do not speak of hospitality so much as something that is uh, shared amongst friends. As much as hospitality is a practice whereby we can convert a stranger a potential enemy into a friend, and thereby also be a guest who receives that same sort of disarming welcome from someone who's different from us. So another way to speak of, think of hospitality is a way of creating space, a re- way of creating space that welcomes someone who is different, that may be unlike you, or it may seem to be such, into a safe, disarming place, whereby, ideally, friendship can arise. You keep using the word disarming, and so flesh that out for us, because assumed in that is that there's going to be some kind of hostility uh, sort of native to this exchange. And so why do you use the word disarming? It's a good word, but I just want to know why. Absolutely. Well, if you think of how so many people uh, confront strangers or think of others that are different from themselves, the first thing that is produced within them often is a sense of fear. What is this person who is different from me? Uh, what, what, how are they potentially a threat? How are they potentially going to hurt, harm, pollute, contaminate? Uh, and that can lead to all kinds of irrational fears. And so I probably am using the word disarming in the sense that instead of responding to a person, thinking that they are a threat to us, uh, hostile, an enemy, uh, what we do is rather bestow uh, uh, in, ancient, in the ancient context, it was often through shelter or food or clothing, but we provide welcome for that person so that our fears and their fears are alleviated, uh, hence they're disarmed. Well, uh, and it's another way of, of sort of responding to one that's different that I think is more civilized, better, and certainly rooted in Christian scriptures than uh, the things that are often associated with fear. So let me 
sort of dive into this a little bit. So I have two children, and I have a very vivid memory of traveling with my daughter, and we were at a rest stop in Ohio on the way to Pennsylvania to see her grandparents. And she was about two years old, and there was a point where my wife was holding her, and a woman sort of came up to her and started doing the coochie-coochie, you know, oh, what a cute baby kind of thing. My daughter lost it. She, mm-hmm. had, she had this very strong stranger danger response for a period of about nine months, around between two and three. And so I, I want to sort of examine this notion of, of the, the, the disarming the hostility in light of what occurred with my daughter. So looking at that, we might rightly assume, and this is what I want to ask you about, that human beings have an inborn or a, a, a hardwired stranger danger, a mm-hmm. hardwired distrust of those who are other from us. Mm-hmm. And I really want to get your take on that, because in looking at your book, Saved by Hospitality, you really want to push against this notion. But what do you think about this assertion that somehow this danger is a rational, either a rational hardwiring or a rational response? That's a great question. On the one hand, I would say uh, absolutely. Uh, fear is a natural and primitive emotion that we have, and biologically we seem to share with animals. Um, uh, and, and fear can be something that's good. Uh, fear oftentimes can lead us to do great things like prevent uh, danger and harm from coming to other people. So I think it would be foolish to try to eradicate fear. Uh, I don't think it's possible to eradicate fear. And so there are instances where fear is not necessarily an evil, vile thing. However, you know, once you get a little bit older, beyond uh, three years old like your daughter is, you start to realize that if I'm going to approach the world and everything that is stranger, uh, everyone that's a stranger or everything that is different from me, always from the emotion of fear, and that other, the other or the different always equals something that is to be uh, kept at arm's length and guarded against, then this kind of fear can often become really irrational. And it can lead to, at best, uh, turning our eyes away from our neighbors who are in need. At, be- at worst, it can lead to things that are violent, uh, discriminatory, and, and yeah, uh, ultimately uh, violent. Um, so I would want to preserve sort of like a sense of fear that is, is normal, is rational. And yet so often uh, in our society, we need to work against having fear being the dominant framework whereby we interpret reality. So one of the things that I want to ask you is when we're looking at this question of hospitality, what is the difference? Is there a difference between hospitality and kindness? How, how are hospitality and kindness simply the same and how are they different? Yeah. You might think of them as sort of overlapping uh, in certain ways. Kindness, um, I think, can take place amongst uh, a variety of relationships and certainly amongst friends. It can take place among parents and children. Kindness can take place uh, in almost any kind of situation that we find ourselves. Hospitality, I would want to try to preserve for that language uh, in relation to the way it's been uh, set for us in sacred scriptures as a a form of kindness that is oriented toward a stranger or that we ourselves as a guest receive from a stranger. Now, as we then extend hospitality as hosts or as we receive it as guests, certainly an an important part of that is going to be um, kindness and compassion. But it's primarily its uh, separation, uh, hospitality, it's primarily separates itself from kindness in that it's focused towards uh, someone that is different. 
stranger. So what is it that got you really interested in this topic of hospitality? When you, when you set out on this project, what was it that, that was the seed kernel that said, oh, I need to write a book about this? Yeah. If you don't mind me backing it up uh, a while ago, it actually, the seeds for this started with my dissertation that I completed at Emory University. Uh, there I was interested in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and primarily I was interested in the way in which the early Christian movement encountered sort of its broader ancient Mediterranean, non-Jewish, non-Christian kind of world. I ended up writing on a text that is a sort of a bizarre passage at the end of Acts, where Paul gets shipwrecked on Malta, and Luke refers to those that uh, are on the island of Malta as barbarians. So surprising, othering language. It's the only time he uses this language of barbarians. But then surprisingly, these barbarians end up performing hospitality better than any other character within the Gospel of Luke or the Book of Acts. And throughout Luke-Acts, sort of the heroes, many of the heroes are evaluated in terms of whether they show hospitality or alternatively inhospitality. So that just piqued my interest, and it started there. And I had a great dissertation director, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, who uh, even though he was primarily having me do, obviously, the work of a New Testament scholar, which is exegeting the text, situating it within its ancient environment and so forth, he said, you know, you really should be reading Henry Nouwen. Uh, read Henry Nouwen on three movements of reaching out, who talks about hospitality. You should read Christine Pohl, ethicist at Asbury, and her book on hospitality. You should read gift-giving kinds of books that are, uh, have been written by anthropologists and sociologists. And Luke Johnson and I both uh, ultimately are interested in the scriptures, um, not just as historical relics, but also for their meaning for us today in the 21st century. And so this was a means of me then sort of doing the normal dissertation work, but then also having an eye on, and what does this have, uh, what kind of relevance or meaning might this have for us today in the 21st century? So that's, those are its origins, and it, it developed from there. For our listeners who may be unaware, uh, can you give us just a quick overview of who Henry Nouwen was and why Luke Timothy Johnson thought that he might be important for you to read in this context of hospitality? Yeah, Henry Nouwen, I, I think, is uh, one of those few figures that has transcended denominational lines and has written deeply about simply the life of faith and spiritual formation and is one who is deeply attuned both to the scriptures and the tradition, but absolutely is attuned to the way that scriptures form us and shape us. Uh, he's, a, I think, a wonderful cultural critic, and uh, I've drawn on him uh, uh, for, in, in many ways for my own spiritual sustenance and nourishment. And I might add, was also a well-known practitioner of hospitality himself. In what way was he a well-known practitioner of hospitality? From what I remember, uh, and, uh, and others I, I, I'm sure know quite a bit more about his life than I do, but uh, spent a lot of his time working uh, in communities with those uh, with, disab with disabilities. And so I think he learned a lot about uh, the life of weakness and the way in which weakness can not just simply in our society seem as though it's an impediment, but actually weakness can contribute to us understanding God and the, and the life of faith. In the process of doing this, do you speak mostly to students, or do you also have the opportunity to speak to congregations? Yeah, well, certainly I speak mostly to students just as a professor at Trinity, but I do have opportunities to uh, speak to congregations. Uh, the nature of the circles I run in, those have primarily been evangelical congregations. But then there are quite a few other congregations that have asked me to come in and to, to either preach or do a little pastor's conference or something along those lines related to hospitality. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
We're speaking today with Joshua Jim. He's Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's author of the new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, available from Erdman's Press. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you might have figured out that I'm a bit of an odd mix. I'm lefty and progressive in my politics, and I'm conservative and traditional in my theology. I'm a full gospel, Acts 4 and 5 kind of guy. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a new degree program being offered by my friends at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. It's their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. Hey, I'm in touch with listeners, and I know a lot of you are serving your communities in nonprofits and civic organizations. Some of you are even on the front lines as activists and organizers. You're trying to make the world a better place. The folks at Garrett want to make this world a better place, too, and they know the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to that effort. If you've been wanting to integrate your faith with your work, you'll want to check out their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. The entire city of Chicago will be your classroom. You'll graduate with a stronger network and a better understanding of how Jesus Christ is speaking to the world of today. Get excited about this. This could be your next step. Go to garrett.edu slash MAPM, the initials of Master of Arts in Public Ministry. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot E-D-U slash M-A-P-M. Tell Katie and Jill I sent you. They're good people, and they'll be glad to tell you more about the new Master of Arts in Public Ministry from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Once again, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot E-D-U slash M-A-P-M. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Joshua Jipp, Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and author of the new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, available from Erdman's Press. So in the book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, you do a thorough examination of several key biblical texts, and you do this being careful to point out that you're an exegete. You say, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not an ethicist, I'm not a theologian. So I want to ask you a couple questions about that. First of all, what are the advantages of taking this kind of approach, this exegetical approach? What do we gain by specifically looking at the language and the history of the language within the text? For me, uh, I am one who believes that the scriptures are the word of God. And so for me, uh, the way that I seek to navigate my life is always in conversation with the scriptures and our interpretation of those. And I think it's very easy to get caught up into different cultural narratives and paradigms that might lead us away from some of the things that the scriptures have to say. So for me, what I want to do is try to, as best as I'm able, see what is the narrative that the scriptures give to us for understanding how the people of God are to approach one another and are to approach those uh, with whom they share differences. Primarily, I get at that through examining the language of hospitality in the New Testament, but also a little bit in the Old Testament. So my goal is to see book by book, can we see, or corpus by corpus, can we see ways in which the early Christian authors or the Old Testament authors were engaging their own cultural situation, their own problems, and what resources did they use in order to, uh, to make sense of those? And so that's ultimately why I'm rooting it, rooting it in the scriptures. But I want not just to sort of give a biblical theology of hospitality that stays in the world of the Bible— I think there's value to that. There, there is a, there's a lot of books uh, that I've been helped by that simply will describe what's there in the Bible. They're, they're helpful. But for me, it seems as though in our current, present, historical moment, 
It's not enough for me to say, well, this is what Luke thinks about hospitality. This is what the Torah says about hospitality. I want to know what do those texts say about hospitality and can I put them in conversation with some of the most challenging societal ecclesial issues that we're facing today? You may not agree necessarily with the way that I give uh, advice or exhortations for how to think of immigration or how to navigate our economy or whatever it may be. But my, my fundamental hope is that you'll realize, listen, the scriptures have something to say about hospitality. And if we're going to say that we're Christians or that we're disciples of Jesus, then this had better be a robust category and practice for how we approach our life today in the 21st century. You say to your audience that you're speaking as an exegete and not as an ethicist or as a theologian or as a sociologist. What, in your opinion, could the ethicist or the sociologist or the theologian bring to the conversation about hospitality that you have not been able to bring to the table because of your explicitly exegetical approach? I think of someone like Christine Pohl, who's an ethicist at Asbury. Her book, Making Room, is, I would say, just a phenomenal book. And she is able to bring a wealth of insight, a wealth of experience a deeper and more robust understanding that comes out of being a practitioner and a practical theologian that might help some people that are actually on the ground and have these questions saying, hey, we're trying to practice hospitality, but we're running up against some problems. Are there limits to this? Should hospitality be unlimited in every aspect? Are there boundaries? Well, Christine Pohl, as an ethicist and as a practitioner, has a wealth of insights that she's able to bring. Sociologists, anthropologists, students of history might be able to, are, are certainly going to be able to give a more in-depth and robust treatment of one of the more stigmatized groups in our society, namely those who are incarcerated or those who have been incarcerated and have re-entered into society. So, of course, uh, they're going to, I, I'm going to uh, draw upon their work to the best of my ability but as they're then articulating what stigma looks like in our society, whether it's with that population or whether it's with, say, the population of those who are plagued with mental health challenges or whatever it may be, there's just a level of history and robustness that I think sociologists and historians are able to bring that I would hope would supplement the work that I do. Now, I want to look at this idea of stigmatizing because it seems to me that when we started out the conversation, we talked about stranger danger, and we talked about the idea of what happens when we look at an other and we feel the recoil of fear, like my daughter did when she was two. Stigmatization is something different. Is it fair to say that stigmatization is what happens when we look at not someone who is alien to us or other than us, but someone who is in our immediate peer group, and we're finding some way to make them different even though they're part of our our clan or our tribe, if you will. Is that a fair characterization of stigmatization? Yeah, I think so. I might just add to it. Stigma often is, um, uh, can take many different forms, but it is when there is a, another person that has a certain character trait, and it may be real or it may be not. It may be purely projected. And we use that almost then as a stereotype upon which we make sense of that person. So I stigmatize a person by finding their fundamental identity to be something that is different and other than me and dangerous, risky, and perhaps even a potential pollutant or contaminant. That's how I would define stigma. So I no longer think of the, my brother as someone who is uh, made in the image of God, who is a fellow human, but I stigmatize my brother by thinking he's a prisoner 
or he was formerly incarcerated, or something about his his race and ethnicity or his religion that provokes fear and that ca- and that works itself up into a stereotype that causes me then to make sense of that person on this projected stereotype. Now, in the New Testament, we'd find examples of that being like the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan was a, a stereotyped class within New Testament times for Hebrews and Israelites. We could also look at lepers as a stereotyped, stigmatized class, those who have skin disease. We also can look at, for example, tax collectors. Right? Mm-hmm. Are these are these fair a- categories? Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I would add, to, I mean, the Samaritan. When the Gospel of Luke puts Samaritan together with compassionate, philanthropic, fulfiller of the Torah, those, two, th- those things are not supposed to go together, right? For me, when, my, when I wrote my dissertation, barbarian, barbarians are those who do not practice hospitality. They're inhospitable. They sacrifice shipwrecked strangers. They are like the Cyclops in Homer's Odyssey. So when the author of Luke puts together barbarian with philanthropic, excessively kind, hospitable. Again, I think what the author of Luke is doing there uh, and the author of Acts is working with these culturally constructed stereotypes and in many ways invoking them in order to subvert them to show these don't make good sense of actual human lives. A moment ago, you mentioned the ethicist Christine Pohl, and she actually wrote the foreword to your book. And in that foreword, she said, quote, undergirding Jip's careful scholarship is a deep passion and a profound compassion. This book is far more than an academic study of an interesting topic. Jip understands what is at stake, unquote. So let me ask you, what is at stake? Well, I don't want to be too over the top, but I wonder if the future of Christianity in North America is at stake. There, there are two different ways, just to speak without a whole lot of nuance for the moment. There are a couple of different ways of thinking about being Christian in North America right now. And granted, there are diversity, certain all kinds of diversity within these two different ways, right? But one form of Christianity, in, in my mind, is, is fearful, uh, is worried, is obsessed with obtaining the, maintaining the cultural and religious power of Christianity as a cultural product, and in many ways is driven out of fear and a loss of that cultural privilege. Oftentimes, it can go hand in hand with supporting the current administration in Washington, it can go hand in hand with some of the most xenophobic policies and rhetoric for, uh, directed against immigrants. How Christianity can be co-opted by that vision, I, I don't know, but that's one form of Christianity. And if that's the legacy of Christianity or if that's what it's going to look like in the 21st century, then in my view, I think we're in for some serious problems. And our ability to claim continuity with the God of the Christian scriptures and with the Jesus of the Gospels seems to me to be very difficult. Have you gotten pushback to the book or pushback when you when you lecture and you, you say things like what you just said? Because I imagine that you're speaking to a more conservative crowd usually. Has anyone ever publicly or privately pushed back against those kinds of statements that you just said, that North American Christianity may be in trouble because we're too much allied with empire? That's not exactly what you said, but mm-hmm. it kind of sounded like what you said. Do people push back against that? And what do they say? So, let me first say, not as much as I would expect, based on everything we're thinking right now and that we've seen the last year or two. I, I teach a class on hospitality to strangers at Trinity, and I've taught it t- twice now, probably to a total of 22, 24 students. 
I have not once within those 24 students or so had any pushback against reclaiming hospitality, welcome of the stranger, even with respect to these different issues at, at sort of just a fundamental no. That's not what Christianity is about. Now, I think for good reason. I don't know how you're going to get there. We might disagree here or there over some of my exegetical arguments, but by and large, I think it's going to be, they're not, it's, it's not rocket science in terms of the texts I'm pointing towards. So for those who are evangelicals or more conservative uh, in their brand of Christianity, uh, my ally to them is let's read the Bible together and see what we see. Now, I will say where I have got a little bit of pushback, but yet again, it might not be as much as one might expect, has been from someone who might say, listen, if I have a neighbor and that neighbor is an immigrant and they're here in the United States, absolutely right. I need to love my neighbor. And there is absolutely nothing that should cause me to stand in the way of that. But then sometimes they might be a little bit more concerned when I, I start pushing it in a little bit more uh, of a structural direction in terms of talking about advocating for more just immigration reform. Usually it's not severe pushback, but there sometimes I would say there can be a little bit of a concern moving from the individual to then, well, how, if, if, if we're called to do that with our individual neighbor, what does that mean on a structural level? What does that mean as we think about incarceration in our country? What does that mean when we think about immigration? What does that mean when we think about a capitalist kind of consumer society that we live in? That might be where I would get a little bit more pushback. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Joshua Jip. He's Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's the author of the new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, available from Erdman's Press. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with Joshua Jipp. He's Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's author of the new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, available from Erdman's Press. Would you feel comfortable talking a little bit about your own religious background? Sure, I'd be happy to. I was born into a Christian family, loving mother and father, who raised me in an evangelical background. Um, my mom and dad uh, were and still are to this day some of the most loving, compassionate, hardworking, wonderful people. We don't agree on everything, but honestly, I want to be like them when I grow up in terms of their character. So uh, for me, the upbringing I had in my church and pastors, the youth pastors, the people that exposed me to Christianity were in many ways people that I admired, 
believed were godly and loved uh, what they taught me. And they gave to me a really deep and loving and abiding passion for the scriptures. That love for the, uh, the Christian Bible uh, continued. And I thought at one point I would probably be a pastor and was preparing to go into pastoral ministry. And I mean, I still do a lot of preaching and so forth, but I ended up taking a little bit of a different route as I found myself just really loving the academic environment, the classroom, loved Greek, loved Hebrew, loved the ancient world. I really enjoyed enjoyed writing. My desire still is to see the people of God educated, to know what the scriptures say, and to be able to bring those scriptures into meaningful conversation with how they live their lives in the 21st century. One of the things that you come back to continually throughout this book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, is this tension that congregations live in between integration and assimilation. The way that I understand that throughout the book is that when an other comes into the presence of a dominant group, the other is sort of called to assimilate into that group. And that's different from integrating into that group. So whether they're laying down their difference or whether they're carrying their difference into that community is really what's at stake. First of all, is that a fair understanding of kind of attention that you're drawing on in the book? I think so. I, I, may, I maybe um, don't talk about it as much as is necessary, but there is a sense then truly it, true in which a large congregation can both be an aid to hospitality, but community can also at times be a threat to hospitality in terms of exactly what you're mentioning, in terms of how much is the person asked to be able to bring their difference into the community and is welcome to do so. And how much are they because of concerns of safety or the normal or whatever it may be that's being privileged? Are they basically asked to sort of shed their identity as a means of coming in? I don't pretend to have solved that or to know how to solve that, but that's certainly a challenge in hospitality in the congregation, yeah. Given that, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, the, the Sunday worship hour is one of the most segregated hours in America, should congregations be encouraged to step out of their comfort zone and embrace difference and welcome others within their midst? Or is that self-segregation somehow okay? That's a really good question. Challenging. Yes, uh, I think congregations are demanded, invited, called to make space for people that are others, that are, un that are unlike them. So if the congregation is primarily uh, in, uh, singing uh, songs in English and is totally oblivious to the needs of a Latino community that's right there, there is a problem of exclusion that is taking place immediately right there. Worship should be a place where we are inviting others and, and we're crafting our worship, we're crafting our preaching, we're looking ways not to be inauthentic to who we are. I mean, I'm a white somewhat middle-aged, man, that's going to remain who I am, but I'm looking for a way. Is there a way whereby we together as a pastoral team, as a staff, can create space for people that are different to enter in? Now, they, they're certainly going to feel unsettled. There's no way to just completely, completely adapt or transform oneself to every person's individuality. But are there points in the congregation or the service or the worship where they feel like there's space for me here? I'm welcome. I'm welcome to be here. I absolutely think that that is a calling for uh, churches to uh, pursue. What are some other ways that you would like concretely for congregations to be applying your ideas and, and your insights as you've exegeted these passages on hospitality within their daily life as worshipers and as congregants? Great question. One, I would say, I'm a bit of a literalist here, but why not try to reincorporate the practice of eating together, sharing meals with one another? 
We could go on for a long time talking about the Eucharist, but when Jesus uh, in the Gospels eats a meal with his disciples and says, this is my body and this is my blood, he's ritualizing a practice there that makes sense only in light of the fact he's been sharing meals together with this sort of family community that he has established and created. And it continues in the book of Acts. Um, I would argue that the church should expect that the risen Jesus will be present in the congregation's midst when they are engaging in eating like Jesus-like meals, like he taught them, that are signs of inclusion and welcome and joy for all people. So I could say more about that, but one would certainly be recovering the practice of eating together. And there are a lot of uh, communities outside of sort of the white dominant community that practice this really well. The second thing uh, I would say is uh, work towards establishing personal friendships and relationships outside of the norm, outside of what you're comfortable with. I think one of the greatest ways to work against fear or to work against stigma is to simply be open to developing relationships and friendships with people that are different from you. I can remember when I was in my early 20s here in Chicago, uh, had a weekly meeting teaching English at an Iranian Muslim family's house. And I don't know what my expectations were. I think I was probably just in, totally ignorant, having no idea what to expect, but I was afraid, uh, a little worried about what, what is this going to be like? And, you know, it went from fear and ignorance about people that were different from me to that being one of my highlights of my week, where I would be entertained as a guest eating Iranian food, and the mother would refer to me every time saying, don't forget, I'm your Iranian Muslim mother. And being open to take a little risk to get outside your comfort zone can be a great encouragement towards, uh, towards learning, towards working against fear. There are many things to say. Let me, just, let me just give one more, and this is a really simple one. If you go to church or wherever or if it's not even church, where think about where is a position where you are comfortable? Where is a position where you, a space where you have some power and you're not afraid? Well, look, open your eyes and see if there's somebody there that doesn't feel the same way. I'm thinking about this at church, but if you, if you go to church weekly, it's not that hard if your eyes are open to it to sort of spot guests that come in or to spot people that may not feel as though they're part of the community and what's going on. Talk to the person. Invite them, invite them to lunch. See if you can uh, move that person from a space of feeling like they're an outsider to an insider. And it may be the difference from that uh, person or that family moving from, you know, severe loneliness, which plagues our society, to a place of friendship and belonging. We've been talking about how Christian congregations should sort of reach out to strangers in concrete ways and those that are not part of the community. But there are also intra-Christian problems. And one of them that comes to mind is the fact that Christians politically in the United States, and I guess all over the world, are on a very broad spectrum. You have right-wing conservative Christians, you have liberal Christians, you have centrist Christians, you have left-wing Christians, and one of the things that's most difficult is having conversations across those divides. So sort of a first question in that direction would be, how does the focus on hospitality refocus how Christians should talk to other Christians with whom they have political disagreements? Great question. Again, let me give a couple of uh, examples uh, or um, pieces of wisdom, if at least I hope they're, they're such. One would be to say, I, I mean, I think you're right to say that our country is so politically divided, and in many ways, all of our discourse is filtered through contemporary politics. And so often people can think 
that by talking about X, Y, or Z, you're immediately aligning yourself with partisan politics. And I, and I would say, um, no, like there may, uh, let me put it this way. When I gave a talk about hospitality to the immigrant in the Old Testament, where God commands, because his people Israel is an immigrant people, they are thereby demanded to remember God loves the stranger. They themselves were strangers. They had better welcome the stranger, the immigrant in their midst and treat them with uh, equality and not exploit them, despite the fact that they are not a native-born Israelite, okay? Well, as soon as you start to enter into this conversation, of course, right, it immediately becomes as though there are simply two ways of making sense of this, either you're Republican or you're Democrat. And granted, those are important conversations, and we need to think about this politically, but I want to say, let's not start there, right? Let's start with what do the scriptures say? And then later we can talk about what does this mean in terms of broader society and how we think about, you know, do how nation states police their borders and so on and so forth. But I, I would like to try to reframe the conversation in terms of hospitality before we then move to uh, um, uh, contemporary politics. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is um, I have a, a, a friend, an older, uh, wiser mentor. Um, I don't know if he got this language from someone else, but he uses the language of intellectual hospitality. And academics, of course, have to do this. Hopefully we do this all the time. So it means, right, that when I am encountering an idea that is different from mine, I am for that moment trying simply to understand that person, to understand that idea. What motivates him or her? Why are they saying what they're saying? How logical, rational, whatever is their argument that they're making? Making space intellectually for the argument that you're making. And as you engage it in dialogue, conversation, whatever it is, lecture, book review, you are absolutely being as charitable, as sympathetic, and as fair as possible as you're doing so. Now, that doesn't mean, right, that you are immediately ob obligated to agree with that person. You may, though, I think if you start doing this enough, you may find, right, that you didn't have everything figured out and that you always are going to have things that you are learning from people that are different and that are unlike you. But it doesn't obligate you to agree with them. It does obligate you, I think, though, to love your neighbor by simply uh, believing the best about his or her arguments, representing them fairly, seeking to understand them. And out of that, I'm hopeful that we can have substantive sort of uh, dialogue and rational engagement with one another that moves beyond sloganeering and so forth. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Joshua Jipp. He's Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's the author of the new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, available from Erdman's Press. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, everybody. If you've been following my exploits, you realize that I have a great interest in faith and science issues. And that's why I'm happy to tell you about uh, some new friends that I've made, the Zygon Center for Religion and Science at Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Now, why I'm excited about these folks is because every every semester, in the fall and the spring, they put on what they call an advanced discussion series or an advanced seminar, and they take some topic that is important in the world of science, and they put it through a lens where they bring both scientists and theologians and New Testament people and people that talk about the various aspects of religion to talk about that subject. And so this fall, they're going to be doing a series on cancer. I know, heavy subject, but 
Um, they're going to look at cancer from all different angles. Some of those angles are going to be scientific, and they're going to bring in cutting-edge theologians and religious thinkers to also talk about it. I'm very excited about it. I hope that if you're in the Chicago area, you feel free to stop by. It's on Monday nights from 6 to 9 p.m., at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago down here in my neighborhood in Hyde Park. That's the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. You really should check them out. They are awesome. Now, to find out more, go online to zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we seek to bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Joshua Jipp. He's Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's author of the new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, available from Erdman's Press. When we look, for example, at the divine liturgy of the Orthodox Church, there's a point where when the Eucharist has been consecrated in that liturgy, the priest proclaims to the crowd holy things are for the holy. Let's think about that in terms of keeping the holy things pure and keeping them esoteric for those who have been through the proper rituals of baptism and others, versus this desire to be open and welcoming and to be good hosts or good guests. There's a real tension there, or am I missing something and there's not a tension? I mean, we could get into all kinds of conversations from different traditions within Christianity in terms of how they set boundaries on who participates and who doesn't. But I do think that at the very least, when we are uh, as believing as the people of God that we participate in the Eucharist, we are doing so not believing ourselves to be sort of this privileged people who have some kind of prior social worth that make us uh, acceptable to now participate in the Eucharist in a way that it sets us off from the rest of the world and rest of Christians. Hopefully, what is taking place is, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are reminding ourselves that we are those who have received divine welcome from the person of Jesus. And it is, therefore, incumbent upon us to be people, to be agents of welcome and hospitality to all kinds of people within Christianity and outside of Christianity. We are called to be agents of welcome and hospitality. So that at the very least, that sort of defining symbol, that defining practice recommits us anew then to look for new forms and new ways. They may not be the Eucharist, whereby we're seeking to extend this welcome to others. So I want to look at the title of your book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality. And my evangelical friends and my friends who were raised with the five solas will want to raise the flag and say, no, sola fide. We are saved by faith alone. Hospitality sounds too much like a work, my friend. Are you saying that somehow we're saved by works? How do you counter those kinds of uh, objections? Right. Yeah, I thought long and hard about whether or not I really wanted to go with this as the title of my book is one who teaches at an evangelical seminary, but uh, it's too late. I did. So why did I do that? Um, Let me give you a couple of reasons. There's this great section of First Clement, uh, early church father, late first perhaps the very earliest of the second century, who is Roman bishop writing to the congregation in Corinth. And they're still having uh, schisms and divisions. And basically what he says, he invokes hospitality as a means or sort of an antidote for them overcoming their bickering and fighting amongst one another. And he's reading the Old Testament. And he says, by the way, wasn't Abraham saved not only when he demonstrated faith, sort of Genesis 15 that Protestants invoke, and Paul himself does, of course, in Romans 4. But also, wasn't he also saved when he showed hospitality to those three strangers? Wasn't Lot saved not only by faith, but also 
hospitality to those strangers in Genesis 19. And wasn't it Rahab, uh, wasn't she saved not only by her faith, but by the hospitality she showed to, those, to the spies? So the title's direct sort of immediate influence comes out of First Clement. But I think, you know, uh, there's actually a deeper point there. That those, that's not a bad reading of the Old Testament, of those portions of Genesis and Joshua and Judges. If you look in James 2, James 2 says a very similar kind of thing when he talks about the works of Abraham that procured his justification. And, the same, and he invokes Rahab as well. So if you're nervous about it, I would read just James 2, 20 through 26 and say, absolutely, amen, Romans is part of the articulation of sola fide and faith alone. But when we're articulating that, let's make sure that James 2 has a conversation as well. I would also just say there, you know, as I studied hospitality, I was surprised by the way it is wrapped up in our fundamental identity as the people of God, not just an add-on, not just first you're justified and then you sort of do this later. It's all intermingled with our identity. So think of the Gospel of John and the way that Jesus uses the symbols of hospitality to overcome the fundamental problem in the Gospel of John, which is humans are alienated from the Creator God. How, do, how does, has that overcome? Well, Jesus uses wine in John 2. He uses water in John 4. He uses bread in John 6. He washes our feet in John 13. He opens up a way for us to come into a home in John 14. All of that, again, connected with the theme of divine revelation, is a way in which hospitality is interwoven with our salvation as the people of God. At one point in the book, you refer to Jesus as the stranger from heaven. And I wonder if you'd just take a moment and explain to our listeners what you mean by that phrase, the stranger from heaven. You have in the Gospel of John, in my understanding of it at least, is that the basic problem humans have is they are alienated from God and they need someone to reveal God to them. And so it's a very sort of dualistic uh, gospel. Uh, and Jesus kind of just drops out of nowhere, it seems, in some ways in the Gospel of John. He's this stranger from heaven, the son of man that has direct access to the God. No one has seen God at any time, right, except the one who is in the bosom of the Father. Well, he is sent as the incarnate son, as the stranger from heaven, as this direct line of access with God. And then, as I was saying, he uses these hospitality symbols and again, I, if I haven't made this clear enough, hospitality as a way of moving us from a place of outsiders or strangers to, ins to social incorporation, friends, right? So that we then, through drinking the wine, through eating the bread, sharing in the water, having our feet washed, Jesus as the definitive revelation of God in the Gospel of John is the one who overcomes our alienation and enables us then to share in the life of God. And I should say, of course, it's the Gospel of John, John 15, where we see Jesus saying to us, uh, saying to the church, I'm not calling you slaves, right? Slaves don't know what the master's doing. I'm calling you friends, friends of the triune God who have been brought into right relationship with him through the stranger. This is an incredibly hopeful book. I mean, all reading through it, it just seemed to me like there is an optimism in this book about the possibilities that are there for us as Christians. But when I look at the world, I oftentimes I, I see cynicism, I see people tearing each other down. What is it, Joshua Jip, that keeps you optimistic? It, it is the calling uh, of God upon our lives, the fact that he's promised us the Holy Spirit to empower us as a means to live this out. 
and a belief that uh, in many ways, this understanding of the scriptures has not made its way into the church, in my, in my view, in the way that it should. Maybe I'm overly optimistic, but my hope is that we might have a more hospitable form of Christianity. And my hope is, uh, as an evangelical, we might have a more hospitable form of evangelical Christianity that will carry us uh, into the years to come. And I see students. I see students where I teach uh, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I see students in other uh, other places as well that are passionate about this, that want to carry on this legacy that they see in the scriptures. And so it's my confidence, my optimism, my hope is in many ways rooted not only uh, in God uh, and the power of the Spirit through the scriptures, but is also carried on in the lives of the students that I'm seeing. Well, Joshua Jip, thank you for taking time to speak to us today, and congratulations on the new book. I really enjoyed reading it, and I'm I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was a really enjoyable conversation. We've been speaking today with Joshua Jip. Dr. Jip is Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's taught New Testament in a variety of settings, and much of his scholarly work has focused on the book of Acts and the life of Paul. We've been discussing his new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, published recently by Airman's Press. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.